0: hello and welcome to co-produced care today we have with us helen sanderson
1: thank you it's lovely to be here
0: great so um i think if we start off if you could just explain who you are and what you're doing at the moment Uh,
1: who am i that's that's a a big question in my work I started off actually as an occupational therapist and worked as an OT for several years and worked supporting people with learning disabilities, which I loved. And after a while, I moved into um, quality, and that's where I got gripped by person-centred planning and started to explore different ways that we can support people to think about their lives and plan how they want to to live. And at that stage, so this was before email, Sophie, can you remember a time before email? Before email and the information that you could find on person-centered planning was like a a handout that had been photocopied like 70 times because that was before there were any books on person-centered planning so we knew this stuff was happening in america john o'brien would come over to the uk and do workshops michael small was doing the same and that was my first introduction to the world of person-centered planning And I I got really involved. I co-authored the guidance with Martin Routledge for valuing people on person-centred planning and started to write books around that as well. But I've never lost my, my deep desire to keep thinking about how we can learn with people and from people about how they want to live. What matters to them, what great support looks like, how they want to be in control of their lives and services and how that needs to direct how services and supports work. So so that's where I started. I mean, I'm a a professor um, at the moment. I'm a professor of digital um, solutions. My PhD is in person centred planning. You can tell I'm completely obsessed about it.
0: Absolutely. Um, I had no idea. Where are you a professor at the moment?
1: I'm a visiting professor at Chester University.
0: Oh, wow. Um, and in terms of person-centred care planning and person-centred planning, I don't know what you prefer to use, but um, for anyone who, I mean, most people know it now, I think it just rolls off the tongue for most people who are in the care sector, but would you be able to describe it in, in a nutshell? Well, I, I see person-centred planning And care and support planning is as two
1: connected but but different things. So person-centred planning is a way of thinking about your life, what matters to you, what you might want in the future, and together with other people who matter to you, figuring out how to get there. And some of the styles of person-centred planning would be essential lifestyle planning, path and maps and futures planning. And then care and support planning is a requirement under the Care Act um, and has its roots in some of the... Ways of getting to know people from person-centred planning. Um, but as I said, it, it has some specific requirements that surround identifying, um, knowing what you're eligible for, um, whether that's your personal budgets. Um, so thinking about budgets, thinking about outcomes, thinking about ways of achieving
0: outcomes in
1: a way that enables you to live the life that you want.
0: And I think it sounds like a really good practice way of doing things. Um, especially in terms of getting to know the person rather than trying to understand the diagnosis Mm. of something supporting um, or being supported. How do you think we can move from looking at, you know, what we can do for people rather than what we can do with people and how can things like essential lifestyle planning help towards making that just common practice?
1: Well, I think the the CARE Act um, really helped us move forward in this and before that, valuing people and and putting people first. But the CARE Act uh, has enshrined in law now a requirement that people have a care and support plan. And that the care and support plan reflects, you know, what matters to people and the guidance on the Care Act, I think, is particularly helpful here. So I guess what you're really asking is how do we help people fulfil what is now a requirement in health and social care? and you know i would love it if all professional training included how we could learn what matters to people and what's important to people and um, not just what their diagnosis is or what they're struggling with and we've seen great strides forward in in lots of areas over the past decade but there are still some places where diagnosis comes first as opposed to what matters to the person coming first and it's been really exciting in health to see the whole movement about what matters to you instead of what's the matter with
0: you. Yeah that's really powerful Um, and in terms of helping people to have their voice heard um, that can sometimes be really difficult. Um, How do you, because I know in some of the care plan meetings we have I don't know whether it's the environment or how we're doing them, but the person isn't necessarily enabled to have their voice heard. How do you make that happen so you can get those really juicy um, informative care plans? I think the first thing
1: is we shouldn't make an assumption that that care and support plans are developed through meetings. They they sometimes are. Um, But I think the most important thing is who either knows the person best or who is best placed to have the conversations about what matters to the person and by finding out what matters to the person not by (coughs) saying Sophie what matters to you but by asking different questions like you know what's a good day like for you and what's a bad day like for you and what's a great morning and what's a great evening and what's a Bad evening and you know so lots and lots of different ways of asking questions that helps tease out with the person what really matters to them as some people of course can just tell us straight away but often um, finding different ways of having different conversations is where we get those nuggets as you describe there and you can't typically do that in a meeting and also meetings are often as you said structured in ways where the person that we're focusing on doesn't often feel powerful enough to assert their views and what they want so so i think using meetings with caution unless they're structured like a, a person centered review where or planning that's that's based on that like planning live where everybody gets up and shares um on flip chart or in different ways what they know is important to the person or their best guesses about what matters to the person now and for the future so there are different ways of structuring meetings but traditional meetings where Some people dominate, uh, are not, absolutely not the ways to best learn what matters to somebody to enable them to create their care and support plan.
0: So in terms of going about it, uh, you talked about paths and maps and uh, obviously essential lifestyle planning. If somebody wanted to change the way that they do their care planning, if it's very process driven, if it's very uh, administrative, how would they best go about starting the process?
1: So somebody um, who's working in services who wants to do a better job of, of care and support planning. Yeah. some really, really great resources on the TLAP website, Think Local app Personal, and the personalised care and support planning. Uh, and I was involved in the development of those, and we have six different individuals that we actually worked with. Um, that shows different ways of doing care and support planning, depending on um, who you're focusing on or thinking about, whether that's an older person with long-term conditions or whether that's somebody that's um, coming through transition towards adult life. So I I definitely start there, um, the TLAP website in terms of resources. And then there are a number of books um, and training courses. I know NHS England, as they've been rolling out um, personal budgets Um, have been offering lots of resources to people to help them get skilled to do that.
0: Thank you, that's really helpful. Um, Now moving on to the support system that helps a team. I almost feel like with your expertise on how to make a a plan or care person centred, you've moved on to the support team and how do we create the best team to support people? to deliver that really high quality personalized care um, and the thing that you're involved in a lot at the moment i believe is the well-being teams um, mm-hmm. so for anyone who's new to well-being teams could you just explain what they are yes absolutely so they came from
1: having worked as, as a consultant for a very long time nearly 20 years um, there's only so far you can go on training courses and um, working as a consultant with organisations, and I wanted to see if we could put into practice everything that we'd be shared, been sharing through HSA and through pers- person-centred planning and personalised care and support planning. Could we actually put it all into practice ourselves? And that's what led to wellbeing teams. But we didn't just want to see if we could offer person-centred services. There are lots of organisations that are doing that really, really well. But we were inspired to see if we could do it using a process of self-management. And this came from reading Frederick Laloux's book, Reinventing Organisations, and seeing the work of of Bertzog or hearing about the work of Bertzog in the Netherlands and different examples of self-managed organisations. So we wondered if we could do it and registered with CQC to be a provider. Started off working in home care, but that's not the end of our aspiration, really. It was just where we could start working. And for the last two years, really tested out whether we could, under the way that services are currently commissioned in home care could we deliver really person-centered services um, with co-production at their heart um, supporting teams to self-manage and also using value-based recruitment and support people to be members of their community so we were very aspirational as you can see Mm -hmm. trying to pull all those different elements together um, yes over the last two years we're still going strong now, but that's that was but we at the end of phase one of wellbeing teams which is can we do it under traditional commissioning and phase two is can we do that with people with personal health budgets and can we support traditional commissioning to move into a different direction to enable more um, radical innovative services to emerge
0: that is uh, really interesting especially I think there's probably two points which are most important there um, I'd like to know more about what a self-managed team is um, and what what bits are you doing practically to help people to go from being managed to self-autonomous teams. And then the work that you're doing with changing commissioning, because I very much feel that a lot of the behaviours that we have come from how we are commissioned. So um, maybe start off with what self-managed teams are. So with self-managed teams, essentially,
1: it, what it means is the roles that would have typically done, be done by a manager are shared and yeah. the team. So you have a very different power dynamic in the team. So the team works together, uh, works to their strengths, shares roles and figure out, figures out, you know, if something goes wrong, you know, what to do and how to learn from that. Now, obviously, we're working in a regulated service and CQC have several requirements of us, including um, services having a registered manager. So in well-being teams, the registered manager is often the well-being leader or um, the well-being leader might be supported by the registered manager. So we still deliver um, the care that CQC would expect, but do that in a very, very different way. So one of the roles that we have is is a scheduler role. So the teams put together a rolling rotor of a two week programme that's based on what is it the people that we're supporting want in terms of time, but also how that we can work flexibly to fit that around how team members um, want to work as well, so that if you're a working mum or a working parent, and it's important to you to pick up your children from school, can we develop a rota that enables you to do that as far as possible too? So, so working in those kinds of ways. Um, so another role would be a the meeting facilitator. There's a reporter, recorder. We have roles around community. We have roles that are connected to how we recruit new team members we even have a storyteller which is around um, communication and and comms and media too so different roles um, shared amongst the team and what's critical is the team determine their own way of working which is a set of team agreements so the team decide how they're going to work together and um, keep reviewing how they're doing in delivering team agreements And then the other thing is what my colleague Michelle would say is where you can see the beating heart of self-management is in a tactical meeting that happens every week and also on Slack, which is uh, an app that we use to to communicate together. I know some people use Microsoft Teams, which is very similar too. So so finding different ways to communicate and connect with each other and sharing roles.
0: That new way of communicating is, I think, quite powerful because you're basically leveling out the team structure or the or organizational structure um, so people feel even just as you were doing where people who we support a feeling that things are doing being done with them rather than to them it's a similar situation with staff so rather than just being given a rotor and saying right here you go get on and do the work you're actually working with different personalities different people um, and how they work and I think that's been quite successful, you have won awards and we've been rated outstanding by the CQC, so congratulations. Thank you and you're absolutely right. So in the
1: about 10 years ago uh, and longer when we were talking about and the question you asked earlier how can we support staff to be person-centered with the people they support and our answer to that was by being person-centered with staff because you can't expect staff to work in a way that they're not experiencing and i think we've moved on now to say well actually if we want people that we're supporting to have the most choice and control in their lives as possible and for decision making to be as close to them so they're actually making decisions themselves or being supported to make decisions to then have hierarchy where decisions are made higher and higher up the hierarchy doesn't make any sense so i think the way we we need to organise and structure ourselves, needs to reflect the services and support that we want people to experience, which is as, as much choice and control as possible, working to people's strengths, problem solving and working really closely together.
0: I think that's a strong point, because I always think that with um, care work, we sometimes traditionally just think of the person we're supporting. But there's the idea of relational autonomy and You know, I am because, you know, we are, or I'm supported by a team who's also feeling quite valued. So um, that does, when you think about it, it makes absolute sense. Um, And no, it's a wonder why we ever worked in the previous way before, but things do change, which is uh, positive. Um, And then moving on to how you are working with commissioning teams. Um, What are the ways that you're trying to change the way that either commissioning is done or thought of? Uh, with local authorities?
1: Well we've, we're very lucky to be working in Thurrock with pioneering um, commissioners and leaders of, of social services and um, Catherine and Les in particular and they invited wellbeing teams to come and work with them to set up two wellbeing teams without changing current commissioning but seeing what we can do within the existing parameters not time and task and um, so supporting that the teams very, very differently, but then using this to inform changes in future commissioning. Now, now theoretically, because we've got personal budgets, because we've got individual service funds, this should liberate us to be working in very, very different ways. But as you know, we're not seeing enough personal budgets or individual service funds to really experience that. So we're working with um, Social Care Future and the RSA, to see if we can identify commissioners who are up for exploring different ways of working. Um, And next week, Martin Routledge with TLAP is hosting some sessions with Commissioners who want to do things differently and work differently Um, and Les is going to be talking there as well about what they've been doing in in Thurrock. So essentially it has to be a different kind of partnership with providers um, that's not trying to do outcomes in a different way or time and task in a different way but figuring out how we can work together to learn how to create different services and supports in an area. And I must say that my colleague, um, Andy Brogan um, and Toby Lowe are really pioneering different ways of figuring this out. But as you've just said, with people we support and team members, we need to create a different way of working together that's relationship-centered, that's, that's you know, focusing on relationships and relationship-centered care, and that's the shift that we need to see with providers and commissioners, that it's not this hierarchical, hierarchical commissioners say to the providers, this is the way that you will do it. But we find different ways of working together in relationship with each other, building trust and ways of working together that really changes the whole landscape of social care.
0: Um, I'm glad you mentioned Tobulo because he is another person I'm hoping to get on um, to co-produce care chat. But I was wondering if you had an example of where there was a commissioning practice which um, wasn't working so well which you managed to sort of help commissioners to think differently about uh, or work co-productively with the providers um, on and and that had a, an impact have you got a, an example where you've seen that happen yet uh,
1: not yet because phase one of wellbeing teams ended at the end of last year and it's now that we're moving forward to being part of a much wider group of people who are um, thinking about commissioning and how that might work differently. And that's really getting kicked off towards the end of, of next week, actually, with this TLAP um, event that Martin Rathledge is convening. So we're excited and optimistic. And we've been invited to, to work uh, alongside different commissioners, but we're still in early days of, of doing that. So hopefully, Sophie, if we get a chance to talk um, in a year's time, there'll be me and lots of other people like Toby and Andy Brogan, we'll be able to tell stories with commissioners about
0: what's changed over the last year great I'll be looking forward to let's put a d- date in the diary I think for yeah. a year, this time year um so in terms of uh co-production now so obviously we're very interested in co-production and how we can actually do it and you've done it in the well-being teams in the way that that the ethos of it I think um Have you got an example of how you've done co-production in any of your work, um, how it's worked and and the benefits it's had on the people that you've been working with? Mm -hmm.
1: I see co-production as the person that we're supporting, choosing um, how they're supported, when they're supported, where they're supported and who supports them and the the time that that happens as well. And that was our our ambition with wellbeing teams. We were successful in some of that. Uh, We weren't successful in some of that as well because of the constraints of working around particular shift patterns um, and the sort of time and task ways in which home care is commissioned. Um, But what we did do well, I think, is work with um, older people that we're supporting for them to explain and share and be supported in the way that they wanted to be supported. So in the care and support planning process that we use, finding out exactly how people wanted their morning routine to be, what tasks were critical to happen you know, in the morning from their perspective, what they would like us to do if we had enough time. I think the, the small details from how you have your cup of tea mm-hmm. to the the you know exactly how you wanted to be supported. get up in the morning so we spent a lot of time figuring that out with people and then finding out the best ways to deliver that and because we were focusing on relationship-centered care although our ideal was that people would choose their teams we never quite got as far as that, um, and that's what we hope to do in the future outside of traditional home care, Um, but really investing heavily in relationships. So decision-making and doing person-centred reviews meant that the person could tell us what was working and not working about their lives and their services and what they wanted us to change on their behalf. So we we did work hard at that. Um, I have a number of co-production partners because as the person who's been leading the organisation, I wanted to make sure that my practice and my work was informed by people with lived experience. So um, I have a co-production partner who is a, a parent, um, Neil, who works with me to help inform my practice when we're working with, with parents well-being teams and if if Neil and I are in a group together one of the things that I'll do at the end of of work that we're doing together is ask Neil to give me feedback on what I did well what I didn't do so well and how I can improve Neil calls on me for advice about things that that he's doing Um, and with each co-production partner we have a different relationship and a different purpose but we have one one one-page profile that on one side says for example, with Neil's, what people like and admire about Neil, what matters to Neil around co-production and how I can best support him as a co-production partner. And then the other side of the the one page profile is the same. And I'm lucky enough to work with Clinton, who's one of our co-production advisors as well. Clinton and I were working together on a a proposal that we did that didn't come to fruition, Um, but sometimes co-production partners work with us to put together bids on different pieces of work that we then work together on and um, I work closely with Helen who used to be um, the partner of somebody who received home care and worked really closely with us in wellbeing teams um, helping us recruit team members so that we were making sure we were getting people that Helen said that she'd be proud to have supporting her partner if he was still alive. So working with co-production partners really significantly around value-based recruitment is something um, we've been pioneering. Um,
0: and I watched a TED talk that you gave a couple of years ago and I definitely recommend people have a look at it because it was so clear and so inspirational um and one of the there were a few things I took away from it going back to staff um and how you used I think it was your co-production partners in the recruitment of of staff and that there was I think um once you go through the different stages of the recruitment process, but one is where there's a workshop and you always have people who might use the service sort of welcoming there, you always make yourself present there. Um, But you also talked about organizations um, helping people to bring their whole self to work or working with with staff as a whole person Um, and the importance of psychological safety. Um, I'd love you to talk to to the idea of psychological safety a bit more, if you can. Well, I'm a big fan of Brené Brown's, and Brené's
1: work, or her most recent work in the book, um, Dare to Lead, is about how we can show up with courage and vulnerability and share who we are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a really significant part of the work that we have try to introduce in well-being teams. So right from, as you say, when we're recruiting people, we don't ask for CVs. And we don't do interviews. We support people to have a conversation with us informally. And we invite people to do their one page profile. So part of bringing your whole self to work is being able to share. This is what people admire about me. This is what matters to me as a person. And here are the ways that I need support to bring my best self to work, to be my very, very best at work. And as you say, when we invite people to come to a recruitment workshop, the pack that you'll get would include the one page profiles of me, the well-being leader and the co-production partner. So right from the beginning, we're sending a message that says we want you to bring your whole self to work and we want to acknowledge that all of us need different kinds of support to do our best work. And then in the recruitment workshop, we structure it so that people are sharing again more about themselves. Um, they're sharing how they use their common sense. They're sharing about their values. We test out some of the things that we do at work in our work, which is giving people feedback, um, and again, you know, reinforcing the whole self to work ethos of accountability and self management. And then right at the beginning of induction, one of the early things we'll do is get people to share their work timelines. So talking from, so I don't know what your very first job, Sophie is, but you talk about your first job right through to your aspirations for the future. We give people big posters, um, which is a template and they describe their their work histories. They say what's worked and not worked around their work histories, what their strengths are and what their hobbies and and interests are. And actually it's how we know people well and how we show up together is really, really critical to psychological safety. But it's much more than that. You've got to feel confident enough to raise issues that are difficult, to um, take risks and not be too afraid that they might not be successful and to be able to hold each other to account. So one of the ways that we do that is using Brené's research, um, which is really clear about setting boundaries and being clear about our expectations of each other. We do a set of team agreements at the beginning that are how we work together as a team. And we also teach people non-violent communication or compassionate communication, as we um, call it, which is about how you are in touch with your feelings, how you recognise when you might be feeling uncomfortable about something, how you identify your needs and then ask people for what you need. So if I'm feeling cross with you about something, Sophie, which it might be because you've left the cups in the sink uh, again, or you haven't paid your way um, when we're having coffee together as a team or something, um, I need to be confident enough to have a conversation with you about that. Whereas what happens in most teams is people will, mutter to each other about that and not talk directly to the person about it. So encouraging that kind of really upfront conversations. And one of the main ways you see that is in tactical meetings where we have a very specific process, but we support people to raise tensions. So what's getting in the way of you doing your best work? What's getting in the way of great relationships in the team? Let's talk about that. Um,
0: I think that's really helpful and I can, absolutely relates to the idea of just having those really honest conversations. I remember a member of staff kept on coming in late for a while. So we had a chat and there's lots of different excuses. And then eventually she came out with, I just can't fit in the school run and get to work on time. So I said to her, well, why didn't you just tell me? We'll just make you come in, uh, you know, we'll arrange it. So you come in that half an hour later. Um, and it was flexible and we were able to do that, which we were very lucky, but it was just having that conversation. Um, and it's almost as if sometimes we do these sort of Myers-Briggs and different personality tests after we've known people for a long time so doing them right at the beginning just helps get rid of all those misunderstandings which can really disrupt sort of the working life so i think that's um that's really insightful and really helpful Uh, one of the things that we go on to with our co-produced care chats is we ask people some cactus questions (laughs) which are prickly questions about health and social care Um, So uh, it's not particularly prickly, but it's just I'm asking quite a few people at the moment. Um, Obviously, we're on the other side of Christmas, and we have a new government. um, And you've talked a lot about the well-being of staff um, and how we can make our teams more effective for the people that we support. Um, Is there any one major one thing, or maybe a couple of things, that you would um, ask for the new government to do to support care workers to do the work that they're doing now?
1: I would go for changing commissioning because a a big proportion of care workers are working in home care where the commissioning for that is task and time. Where it's commissioned that way, it's much more likely that providers would use zero-hour contracts for staff, which gives staff no security in their work, which makes it really hard for them to plan week by week. Um, they don't wouldn't know what shift they were doing the next week. And I think that is the most disastrous thing for people's wellbeing, is not having predictability, in how much they're going to earn each month um, not knowing when they're working and when they're not working it's very common for people to get their shift patterns on a Friday for the next week well how can you plan to see your son play football on a Sunday morning or have a coffee with friends or have evening meals together as a family when you don't know what you're working so I think the biggest contribution that the government could make to the well-being of care workers would be to change commissioning, move away from time and task commissioning, which only happens in home care, only happens in home care. Mm-hmm. So make that um, impossible to keep doing and to have a different relationship between providers and commissioners in the way that we've talked about earlier.
0: Um, and in terms of something that they could do for social care um, that might affect people that we support, uh, is there any funding or? Anything, changing the law or anything that they could look at in order to help um, the situation of of people that are supported in care?
1: Implement the Care Act. So the Care Act is uh, not, so if you imagine equal opportunities legislation or health and safety legislation, that wasn't rigorously followed up to make sure it was happening and reported on. And the Care Act is not being followed up in that way, despite the best efforts of TLAP and Sky and other organisations. It's almost as if it has no teeth. And um, it's a requirement that people, you know, have personal budgets in so many different situations. Now, I know NHS England have got very aspirational Um, targets for that which is brilliant but until you know everybody who is entitled to health and social care support um, is told what their budget is is told that they can have direct payments or an individual service fund and is supported to make that as easy as possible and again that's the value of individual service funds I don't think we'll see the transformation that we want to see in health and care so I think the the health and um, the care act did a lot to support as we've talked about earlier, the requirement for care and support planning, uh, people having personal budgets, and um, to see that actually happening in people's lives is required and would be amazing.
0: I wonder why do you think that um, the Care Act has been so slow in gaining, I think, uh, popularity or implementation? I remember when the Mental Capacity Act came out, there were <coughs> health and social care. Oh, wait until that goes. Um, Yeah, so I was just saying, I remember when the Mental Quest Act came out, I think it was Department of Health and Social Care, or Department of Health back then, issued some funding where providers can have booklets of how to implement it, there was the same for carers and commissioners, um, and there was a lot of support for people to understand what it is and how to implement it, Um, and I feel like the Care Act has come and gone and and there's just not been that push for it yet as you say it's got so much in there and so much potential um why do you think there hasn't been that type of uh, focus on it as there has with with other new legislation i think it got
1: lost a bit with austerity uh, and i think councils were able to to argue that they couldn't invest Um, lots of energy around implementing the Care Act when they were managing, you know, so many other other crises. Um, But honestly, I don't know. I don't know why some legislation um, has a lot of weight put behind it and and others doesn't. And of course, we've been waiting for a new green paper for a long, long time. So the fact that the green paper isn't emerging either um, does make it easy to believe that social care is not one of the government's highest priorities and next to our NHS sister is often seen as the poor relation and I think if we could stop seeing health and social care as separate in the way that they, they are seen because actually you know loneliness as you know is, is a bigger challenge for health and lots of other things, but loneliness is seen as a social care issue. Um, But the uh, impact it has on your health is seen as a health issue. So it'd be wonderful if we could stop seeing health and social care uh, as two completely separate things, funded completely differently with different expectations and requirements. And the push towards integrated budgets has been part of trying to move in that direction. But again, that's not quite had the amount of traction that ideally everybody would have liked to have seen
0: yeah um okay so i think we've come to the end of our co-produced care chat i feel like i could speak to you for a lot longer but i did say at the beginning that i'm going to try to keep this one under an hour um so maybe we will just revisit it again um in a few months time when you've got loads more to report back on on the impact of well-being teams and your ideas um of improving commissioning so i'm really super excited to hear more about that um so All that's left to say is thank you very much, Helen. Lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Sophie. I do
1: appreciate it. Thank you.